Hey all and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. This is uh, part two of a two-parter. So if you haven't listened to the first one, you might want to go back and listen to last week's episode on company towns to get your bearings. If not, you can dive right in and listen to uh, me talk about the Pullman train car company and all of the downstream effects that had for housing and for corporate uh, kind of space there. So uh, enjoy the episode. Uh, remember, if you need Poplar services, you can find them at poplar.home slash POD. That's poplar.home slash POD. Enjoy the episode. But the next one we're going to talk about is Pullman rail cars. So Pullman got super famous for inventing the sleeping car. Um, the Pullman sleeping cars were, were cars that people were, you know, you travel a long distance and trains don't go super fast so you can sleep and then wake up where you need to be. You, you just go to sleep and you wake up and you're there. They're also nicer and cost more to stay in because... If you're able to afford a berth in a sleeping car or even a whole sleeping car, you can uh, you're going to be paying a little bit more money for it. So they become very profitable for him, and he makes a lot of cars that are attached to these um, other people's cars, and that's a great business for him. But he he was being so successful, and then he started thinking about how how he could get better work out of people if they had a better environment. And this goes to that paternalism thing. Is he he really believed that if he had this better environment, the most skilled workers would want to live in it. And if they were the most skilled workers, he'd get better quality, right? So he founded the town as a model city and it had parks, a library, well-ordered street plan. It did have gas lighting and it had um it had electricity and it had a lot of modern conveniences for this 1890s, right? So 1880s, 1890s. And it's 400 acres, 13 miles south of Chicago. And there's a quote from the Pullman Foundation. Now they are kind of the Pullman Foundation, but this I think is a useful quote. Uh, George Pullman thought that by developing a total environment superior to that available to the working class elsewhere, he hoped to attract the most skilled workers to build his luxury rail cars and to attain greater productivity as a result of the better health and spirit of his employees. He hired the architect Solon S. Beeman, landscape architect Nathan F. Barrett, and civil engineer Benzett Williams to help him realize his vision. So he pulls in these, these people who are of kind with him and going, yes, that is absolutely true. People are reflective of their environment. The better they're living the healthier they are. The better they're living, the more productive they are. It's this, it's not a horrible idea, but it's not really, um, it, it's not really in the idea, it's in the execution. Because while a lot of the houses were great, uh, he cut corners in some of the construction and he even had tenements around the edges. So some of the houses were pretty shabby. They didn't have plumbing and they didn't have great construction materials. Uh, some of the outskirts were just ramshackle and falling apart, and those rented for less. But universally, the houses were rented for more. The houses theoretically were, were better, were much better, and some were, uh, than anyone, any of them in the surrounding area. But there's this huge disparity in quality. That quality shift didn't matter because if you work for Pullman, you have to live there. So they're 25% more expensive than other houses in the area. But you have to live there if you work for Pullman. 
it's not isolating by location like the the labor or the lumber camps and steel mill steel mill that's such a weird word to say in context but this isolation is a condition of labor so if you want to work pullman you have to live pullman you rent from pullman as a condition of the job which you know gets complicated because what happens if you get fired you lose your house your kids are getting kicked out of school and the house the day that you're getting fired this this entanglement sets it up so that the individual's goals must align with the companies and they have to kind of bite the bullet if they want to keep that job the other thing that happens is that you've got the Pullman company on both sides of this expense and expenditure space, right? So if the demand for train cars drops, what happens? Well, they found out in 1893. So in 1893, there's a panic. It, it rocks the economy. It's a depression that causes train car orders to decrease. And Pullman cuts wages over the course of the year by about 25% for his workers. So whatever they were making, it was a lot less because people were using train services from Pullman less. They didn't need more cars. And these are workers that are putting in 16-hour days. They buy from the company store. They live in the company houses. Their kids are in company schools. Where can they go? If your wages are cut by 25%, and a condition of that job is you have to live in that house, how do you find another job when you're working 16 hours a day? How do you find another job when leaving the grounds is unnecessary for almost all the workers? They, they don't have vehicles. They don't have easy transport to go and find another factory job. So they don't have a representative in that town. There's no elected officials, right? So for this, this little town... Pullman is it. They have no say in the market for labor or for homes. So they aren't able to go, okay, well, my wages went down, so I'm going to find a way to spend less. They can't change their biggest expense, which is housing. And that is a big, big crippling factor for them where it ties them into this. So they're, they're stuck. There's this stuck thing where you feel like, I... I I feel like there's a deep aggrievement that makes sense to go, okay, well, you know, I, I see that the economy's bad and their Pullman's getting hit and so they're cutting our wages. I get that. But we can't pay our rent now. So we're having to starve and our kids going hungry because that 25% cut means that we don't have the money that was our overhead for food. So the workers form a committee and they go to the Pullman staff and they say, hey, since wages were lowered, can you lower rent too? You're in control of both sides of this and we can't choose where to go. Flat out refuse. Pullman says no. And it looked like there were these three that appeared to organize the committee and they were just fired. So those guys are fired. They went in trying to solve this problem and now those three guys have a bigger one. And I can't imagine how crushing that would be to go, cool, we think we have a legitimate grievance. Let's go talk to him and see if we can come up with something. And the answer is not only no, but GTFO, get out. So you have eviction and income destruction in one day. 
you know, if you think about renters who have the money to pay rent, but they're like, well, crap, if I pay rent, I won't make my car payment or I won't make my, my, um, I won't be able to buy food for this week. So let me see if I can pay most of it. I'll take the, the fee or the fine and then I'll pay the rest in two weeks when I get my next paycheck. What if when you did that, instead of working with you, instead of charging a, a fee because you're, you're paying late, what if instead of that, they go, um, yeah, we're not going to negotiate. Get out. Get out today. Get out. That's that's devastating. So that happens 7th, 8th, 9th of May in 1984. That's when the, the conversations happen, the firings happen, this kind of grievance comes to a head. And the whole group in the Pullman factory on May 11th, 1984, they struck. They walked off the line and refused to work. Pullman was forced to put signs saying close until further notice on the Pullman factory. Uh, orders that were being prepped and still moving through were just sitting there, not being worked on. Um, tools, machines that need maintenance, the maintenance wasn't getting done, and they just stopped. You know, Pullman stopped making cars. So... At the same time, this is all going out around, going on. The uh, American Railway Union was representing Pullman employees at large, so not necessarily people in the factory. They didn't. They represented more of um, coal shovelers, engineers, signalmen, but they represented some of Pullman employees, like thirty-five percent maybe. But they represented none of the workers in the company town and were not involved in the decision to strike. They had nothing to do with it. They were representing like these other guys, coal shovelers. Engineer signalmen. Signalmen are important here because they're responsible for hooking up trains and switching the tracks in the yards. They they pull a train off a side yard and get it hooked up. So when a Pullman car needs to be attached because somebody's going to pay to ride a Pullman, they got the signalmen hook them up. Signalmen hear about this uh, strike that the is happening at the Pullman factory and start refusing to hook up Pullmans. They say, no, I will not do it. And the American Railway Union is looking at this going, wait, wait, okay, I, I see what you're doing. Um, are we in solidarity with them? And they were not sure. They were kind of going back and forth on it. And then these guys that refuse to hook up Pullman cars, they're just fired. And others quit in solidarity and they hire scabs and then the union gets mad. And so there's this snowball effect where once the signalmen start and the union's people are getting abused, uh, there's strikes that just kind of start as wildcat until the American Railway Union starts supporting them. And it's somewhere in the mid-100,000, so 120 to 150,000 railway workers were on strike. It's so bad economically for the state, for locals, that they send in militias to stop strikes. These militias are there to push the people back into work. Um, eventually, federal troops uh, are called in because it's such a push and hit to the nation's economy. S- train stop is insane. It's it's There's no supply now. Stuff that needs to get there. We're talking about food. We're talking about lumber. We're talking about just basic stuff isn't moving. So federal troops show up in Chicago. And I'm not going to get too into it. You can look it up if you want. But Eugene Debs is here. And Eugene Debs is helping coordinate the strikers. And he's helping out. And so when he sees federal troops, he thinks the federal troops are there to control the militias and make this strike 
and negotiations calmer. Um, that was not the case. The federal troops showed up and attempted to subdue and force them back to work. And Eugene Debs couldn't control the strikers anymore. So they rioted and they destroyed hundreds of rail cars in South Chicago over the course of a day or so. Um, there were thousands of troops in the city, but there were more strikers and the troops could not contain the riots. So they started shooting into mobs. Whenever there was a group of people that was going towards a train yard to destroy it, they'd shoot them up. And they killed somewhere between 5 and 30 people and wounding many, many more. So it goes on like this for a while. And when the level of violence and the level of financial damage hits a point where everybody's kind of exhausted by it, there's railways that go, okay, we'll do new protections, but we're not going to hire any of these people that were involved in the strikes. Pullman has a different problem because all of the people that knew how to do the jobs in the Pullman factory were striking. And so Pullman comes to an agreement with the strikers that gives them um, some of the stuff that they're after. And part of the agreement, though, is that they have to consent to never, ever, ever join a union. And so they're taking away that ability to kind of ever strike again or ever kind of do it in a legal manner and this is after the economic damage to the strikers themselves was in the millions in lost wages for those hundred thousand people and the rail companies lose many millions in property train cars lost production for pullman lost payments for transportation so this crazy thrashing of capitalism has profound downstream effects uh pullman was instructed to sell the town um, I, I found two dates, one said 1895, one said 1904, but in any case, they delay and don't do it till 1907, um, and they, they, by selling it, they're turning over the governance of this to the actual municipalities, and so it's now a suburb of Chicago, it's on the Registry of Historical Places, and it kind of sits there as a testament to Pullman and factory towns, company, company towns. And this idea of paternalism. And I want to read this this quote from the Social Welfare Library on paternalism. So, paternalism is a subtle form of social engineering. It refers to the control of workers by their employers who seek to force middle class ideas upon their working class employees. Paternalism was considered by many 19th century businessmen as a moral responsibility or a religious obligation which would advance society while furthering their own business interests. So we've seen as this collusive thing where you do two things that you want to do but then when there's conflict furthering their own business interests is where it really kicks in back to the quote accordingly the company town offered a unique opportunity to achieve such ends however government observers maintained that pullman's principles were accurate and that he provided his employees with a quality of life otherwise unattainable to them but he recognized that his excessive paternalism was inappropriate for a large-scale corporate economy and caused the town's downfall the Illinois Supreme Court required Pullman to dissolve their ownership of the town. That's an interesting kind of take on it because it does balance those two things and, and, and it looks at him and goes, oh, well, that's that's the moral or religious obligation. But then on the other side, there's this pure capitalism and they're mated. They're put together in such a tight way. So what is this? What what do we take from the story of Pullman? It's, it's a story of conflict, a story of conflicting purposes 
And there's this manipulation of these motivations for profit and control. And it leads to death, riots, loss of property, and then eventually change, this pulling away from corporate towns. And so what are the echoes today? And this goes to the stuff we talked at the very top of the episode, right? So the case we're talking about with Meta going, hey, everybody has to work in the metaverse. Everybody's got to buy these that we're making. You have to buy one. It's part of your employment. So I'm going to use your salary to subsidize my company that you work for, right? That's that's really interesting. And then you get into the non-direct corporate conflict. So if you look at the condos in Florida, right? So... Recently, the, the, it's called the Surfside Condo Building, and one of them collapsed. We see another version of this, but one that has problems like almost all the way down. Uh, Investigation is still going on, but current leading discussion on the cause is a combination of factors, right? So the pool has this leakage, and it damages the reinforced concrete underneath. Uh, the owners didn't really want to spend the money to fix it. And very early on when the building was being built, corruption was occurring during the construction process. Each of these is a separate motivating set of events. But when they're in conflict, the results that are usually pushed by financial reasons are passed to later, to communal, the community property. It just degrades. And when downstream doesn't understand what's happened upstream, and then they start making their choices based on inaccurate information, you get this loss of life, this catastrophe in Florida. I mean, there's ways this can happen. The damage to property, the damage, the loss of life is irreparable. It's that's, that's the biggest tragedy in all this stuff is the loss of the lives. But this, this kind of stuff can happen with mismanagement in an HOA or a co-op, you know, from houses that sharing streets or storm ponds. I mean, we're seeing parts of this too. And the national flood insurance program keeps getting hit by disasters. And then you have countries, whole countries, that kind of think that they have this same paternalistic approach. Um, if you look at Saudi Arabia's proposed city, they're calling it the line. They want to make a 110-mile city for 9 million people that will have no cars and people will fly by drones and it's going to be this perfect shining example in the desert. But it's in the desert. And this comes to... You know, the building of the Burj Khalifa. The Khalifa was originally to be called the Burj Dubai, but they ran out of money. And so Khalifa helped funding it and got naming rights as one of the considerations. But as they were building the Burj Khalifa, they were looking at it and they go, you know what? Attaching it to the city's sewer is a waste of money. We're going to have to pay the city to uh, process that sewage. We're going to have to pay to get it all hooked up. So let's, let's not hook it up to the city sewage. They decided, actively decided, that's too expensive. Now, this is a building that can house upwards of 30,000 people. 30,000 people living and working in this building. It can generate, from those 30,000 people, 15 tons of sewage a day. And since it's not going into the city's sewage, trucks drive through it non-stop to fill with and transport human waste. This is a far cry from Pullman. I understand that. It's also a far cry from a condo disaster. But what you start looking at is there's these choices that are made that push into 
the success, the efficiencies, and the product here. And that's where it's so funky. Like you start thinking about Nevada's smart towns, these tech towns they want to build. How do those work while retaining the humanity of the inhabitants? Is there a point at which you are a processing machine for this company? Or is there a point at which you can balance the needs of the company against the needs of the individual? Uh, What would have happened if Disney had succeeded in putting Epcot there? How often would you see a moving truck and go, oh, somebody got hired, somebody got fired, I don't know which. That's scary. And then you've got, you know, Charles Munger going, here's how I think college dorms should be. And that's, again, it's that same paternalistic thing going, no, you'll be fine. I've decided you'll be fine because I've decided. So these conflicts of ideas, they're so often just result in a purely monetary choice. That's just where they're at. And this is where it gets to planning this factor against your investments. So you may invest in condos. You may invest in single families in HOAs. You may invest in apartments. But there comes a point in all of those where large CapEx projects need to be done. So your holdbacks, rents, cash flow must take that into account. Repair is good. Prevention is better. And reserves are gold when you need them. We talk about risk on here a lot. So this is another vector for risk, right? So how much risk are you comfortable with? Do you want to buy the house that was built in a company town and may not have the infrastructure it needs to support it? Do you want to buy and invest in Pullman? What's happened since it was built? How has it been repaired? Is it in the municipal space? If they build in the desert, will there be opportunities for investors, single family rental companies to own a couple of the homes? Right now you have several single family home rental companies that are building whole communities. It's like apartments, except you don't share walls, but you do share amenities. You do share streets and needs and community centers. So delaying repairs because you can't afford to or don't want to spend on them can lead to lawsuits, dangerous living conditions, medical issues, or worse. So having problems solved before they become problems is a sound strategy. It's one of those things where in advance you want to get rid of it. Think about paternalism, though, and recognize the difference here is that paternalism is saying, I know the best conditions for you to live in. And what I'm saying here is solving problems before they become catastrophic is the condition that people want to be living in and is the investment condition that you should be thinking about. So think about your role in the home's quality. Think about what you're providing as an environment for another human being. So think about this as your role as an investor in the life of another person. And as you think about that, if you need help, with managing your properties. If you need property management services, Poplar can help out. You can get to us at poplar.homes slash POD. Again, that's poplar.homes slash POD. I'm going to end this on this note, just leaving you to think about that. And we'll talk to you again next week. (laughs) 